Life is filled with many, many important tests. They come to us in various sizes and shapes and forms throughout our lives. We don't pass them all. And by the grace of God, we frequently will have opportunity to take them again until we do pass them. Without regard, I will never forget when I began at seminary a number of years ago and, and I had to take an English proficiency exam as an entrance requirement into seminary. Well, having slept through English class 30 years prior to that, it was a challenge. I arrived on the day to take the exam. It was two hours allotted for the exam and I was handed a rather thick exam book and sat down to take the exam. After 10 minutes, I was finished. I took 10 more minutes to review my answers, making sure that I had correctly marked what little knowledge I had. And then I turned it in. I stood out on the patio for quite a long time before the first young whippersnapper, about 23 years old, came bounding out of the test room walked up to me and said, man, you must be a genius. (laughs) He said, when I saw you turn that in after 20 minutes, I thought that guy's a genius. I just smiled (laughs) and said, no, I'm not a genius. I got a 13 on the exam. (laughs) So my first class in seminary was bonehead English. Yep, took it, and then took the exam again. This time, by the grace of God, I passed. And that's the way it is. Uh, the exams, they come to us. There's, there's no avoiding them. And every exam has, has profit in it. It really does. You know, in God's economy, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, there are spiritual exams that come at us. They come by design of God. Did you know that? It's actually God who's administering these exams to us. And they're they're for our benefit and for our profit. If we pass, we move on. And another exam will be coming shortly. If we don't, God in His grace and His mercy, He enables us to take bonehead English again and come back around and take that exam all over again. That's how he works. Life is a series of exams. Maybe you're involved in one of those tests or exams right now. Maybe it's pressing down on you this morning. Maybe you're not. Maybe maybe life is pretty carefree for you right now. If so, enjoy it. There's another test coming on Friday. It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. So this morning from James and what he has to say to us, I want to help us by reviewing four necessary steps of preparation. Four necessary steps of preparation in order that we might achieve a passing grade on life's spiritual tests. A passing grade on life's spiritual tests. In order to do that, there's some preparation. And the preparation begins with our attitude. It begins with our attitude, verse 2. We must cultivate 
a right attitude. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, James says. He launches here right into the guts of this epistle. This is what it's about. It's about practical Christianity working itself out in the life of a believer and what greater stage on which that to occur than the very trials of life that are common to all men. Consider it all joy, he says, when you have to take the tests of life. It's actually a shocking statement, isn't it? I mean, when you you pause and think about that, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. It's shocking. He takes a little of the sharp edge off it by saying, my brethren, do you see that? He's including himself, so he's, he's not speaking from on high. He's part of the group that's undergoing the various tests and trials of life. By the way, this is probably not the verse that you want to bust out with when you have a friend who's just undergone some kind of tragedy. You know, there's a couple of really great verses in the Bible. Romans 8.28 is one of them. This is another. So it's probably just not exactly the place that I'd start with somebody. You know, when they're laying there bleeding, you know, consider it all joy. <laughs> it's easy for you to say. But we, we can't escape it. We can't evade it. We don't want to get away from it because it's so important. So important to us. The way it's constructed here, by the way, this is an imperative. It is a command. And the way it's constructed for us in the Greek is that it's to be a decisive and once for all attitude adjustment that a believer needs to make. It's part of what it means to be a child of God, to come into a saving relationship with the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. That is. Transaction, that that amazing transcendent spiritual occurrence, the miracle of conversion should bring with it a, a decisive change of attitude in the human heart and mind. That once for all change, by the way, has to be repeated in every single test. So it's a change of the attitude, but it's a change that has to be reinforced Every time I have to sit down and take another test, I am to count it all joy, he says. Not just last week's test, not just next month's test, but the test that I'm involved in right now, whatever it is, I'm to count it all joy. Now, it's not that tests or trials are happy experiences, right? Happiness, by the way, is more of a circumstantially driven thing. You know, you come home from work and your wife has cooked your favorite meal and she puts it on the table and, man, I'm happy. I'm happy, happy. I'm second helpings happy. But that's different than joy. Joy is a a deep, settled confidence in the heart brought about by our faith in God and what he is doing in Christ. And it's a, it transforms our attitude and our perspective about life. It's interesting here in this verse, 
as James talks about trials, the, the observations that he makes for us. Notice, he says to us that trials are certain to come. You see that? When you encounter various trials, he doesn't say if. When you encounter various trials. That means they're certain. There's, there's no avoiding them. They are coming. There's a test on Friday. You could be sick, but it'll be there on Monday when you get back to school. You know what I'm saying? This, this test is unavoidable. These trials are unavoidable in life. They're coming to you, and they're coming to you because God has designed them such. So they're certain. Beyond that, they're unexpected. When you encounter... James says, various trials. This word translated encounter here is used over in Luke. We won't turn there, but you'll know this. Luke 10 and verse 30. And it's used there to speak of the man who who fell among robbers, fell among thieves in the story of the Good Samaritan. He was headed down to Jericho, remember that, and, and he was just unexpectedly surrounded by and, and, and robbers fell upon him and beat him and left him for dead. That's how trials come. That's how the tests come. We actually don't get warnings. We don't say, <clears throat> test on Friday. They just come out of apparently nowhere. They come upon us unexpectedly. We're not really looking for them and they're there. And you're in the middle of it. It's unexpected. Beyond that, it comes in various shades and forms. You see it? Various trials, he says. Again, another very rich Greek word. It's, it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak of Joseph's coat of many colors. The trials that come to us have many different colors, many shades. It's not all one way, one thing comes at you from a different direction, a different way, a different test. God is at work. Now, what kind of trials is James referring to here? Well, he's referring to the external trials that come upon. He'll deal, beginning in verse 13, with the internal temptations. We'll look at that ourselves next week. So for now, he's talking about the external trials, the external temptations that come upon us. Now, it's easy to think about what some of those might be, particularly in a first century context. We think about persecutions, right? Hardships, poverty, bereavement, sickness, all of those kinds of things. And, and many of those are still true in the human condition 2,000 years later, to be sure. There are the various difficulties of life that come upon us. And they are no respecter of persons. Poor people and wealthy people both suffer illness, bereavement, death. There are those that are unreasonable, unreasonable bosses and things like that. These kinds of trials for sure come, along, come upon us. But I think it's broader here. I think it's broader. And the reason I think it's broader is because of verses 9 through 11 where he introduces this interesting kind of illustration where he talks about prosperity. You know, we don't really think of prosperity as a trial very often. We think of prosperity as a blessing. That'd be a good thing. If I were rich, that'd be a good thing. 
And certainly material prosperity has its benefits, to be sure. But it also brings with it its trials. It brings its difficulties. That promotion that you just took brings with it a whole series of trials and testings. There are calls upon your time that were previously not as great. There's a temptation to to compromise your standards and your ethical position as you move up in the business world. There are longer days of travel, longer office hours, more people that you are responsible for. There are many, many things that come with regard to wealth and prosperity. They can be every bit as trying to the human soul as those associated with poverty. So God, being no respecter of persons, brings trials to all kinds of people. And they come to us in various forms and in various colors. They come unexpectedly, and they do come. They do come. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when these things fall upon you. You know, I cannot help but think about the Proverbs with regard to the trials that come upon those who experience poverty or riches. For example, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. The writer says, keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Different trials, various colors coming to people of all the social strata. Proverbs 27 and verse 21. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold. And a man is tested by the praise accorded him. It's a trial to be popular. Did you know that? There's a whole series of testings and trials that come to those people that enjoy popularity or celebrity status. It's not an easy life. One writer, commenting on this, said the following, and I think it was really insightful. So listen as I quote him. He, that is James, he writes this because he fears that his people, like other Jews and and many supposed Christians, would imagine that affirmation of orthodox theology and membership in a community of faith was enough to please God. He feared complacency more than persecution. He feared that people would be strong in knowledge but weak in life. James says it's not enough to know. We must live what we know. Wow. It's not enough to know. We must live what we know. We must live what we know. This weekend... One topic that occupied the elders' attention for a considerable period of time was a discussion of discipleship. What is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? How do 
we go about fulfilling the great commission and our call to make disciples. We observe that as we look at our own ministries here within Foothill Bible Church, that we have a weakness. We have a structural weakness among us. And that structural weakness is, is, is that we have inadvertently allowed too strong a connection between the, the idea of knowledge and discipleship. We've allowed an equal sign to be drawn in many people's mind between knowledge and discipleship. Meaning that if you know certain things, you are thus a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you are a greater disciple, a more mature disciple of Jesus Christ, the more you know. You can see where that can go, right? Paul says knowledge does what? It puffs up. It is not that that discipleship is void of knowledge. Go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all things that I've taught you. So there is definitely a transfer of orthodoxy that occurs in a discipleship process, but it is not that alone. It's not that alone. It is a transfer of orthodox knowledge that results in a changed life, a life that shows itself in the midst of trials, James says. The trials are the test, the exam, to see whether the theology you have been learning, you've really been learning. We'll be talking much more about this in the days to come, to be sure, of how do we go about creating opportunities for life on life and the transfer of the, of the Christian life from one person to another and not merely the downloading of a file, a content dump. I'm looking forward to what that looks like. We must cultivate the right attitude, my friends. That's the first necessary preparation to pass life's spiritual tests. Beyond that, secondly, we must accept that there is no other way. This is a rough one. We must accept that there is no other way. Verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason that James gives that we are to count it all joy once and for all and then again in every single trial or test It's because we know something. He says that you know something here. And and the word here is that you experientially know. You experientially know something. It's not that just you know it up here. You actually know it down here. You know it in your life. You've, you've, You've experienced it. And what is it that you've experienced? You've experienced that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It actually hardens and tempers your faith. We recognize that trials are not random and they're not aimless. But as we bear up under them, they actually produce something in us. Endurance. Hupamone. The ability to, to hold up under something. To carry the weight, to carry the load is the idea. So rather than try to escape or evade the trials, 
they actually are being used by God to, to develop and display this virtue of endurance, Christian endurance. It's really fascinating. Think of it this way. In the Navy SEALs training program, the, the Navy SEALs-to-be, I guess that's what you'd call them, they have to carry a log around. And there's a whole line of them carrying this log, and, and they have to push it up in the air and down every so often. When they first have the log and put it up there, it doesn't, it's not so heavy that it, they're struggling to get it to their shoulder. There's a whole team of them, and, and they just pop it up there. They're big, strong, beefy guys. And they'll push it up and down a few times and they'll run around with it on their shoulder and pretty soon it starts to get heavy. Pretty soon their shoulders start to ache, their arms begin to sag. After a while, some begin to drop out. They're not holding their share of the load anymore. They're not pushing on the log. They've kind of got their hands there, but they're, you know, there's half an inch of air. They're beginning to try to pull back. They're not enduring under the trial and remaining under the load. But as they do remain under the load, for a long period of time, there's a, there's a growing strength in their upper body and sense of teamwork that's so vital for them in their mission. So that's what James is saying here. Even though you want to get out, you want to get away. You want to evade. You want to get your hands off the log. You want to fall out of line. You want to drop out. He says, you know. You know that you can't do that. You know that when you stay in, when you hang in there, it produces endurance. But it doesn't end there. Endurance is not the end in of itself. Verse 4. Let endurance command let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As we hang in under the trials, we build endurance. As we build endurance, it gradually produces a mature Christian character within us. That's the ultimate end. Not just that we would have endurance, but that we would become whole, that we would become complete, that we would become mature in our faith. And there's no other way to maturity. This is how God has designed it. Every time we try to get out of the test, every time we cheat the test, we deny ourselves the opportunity to refine our faith and mature in our Christian character. And all it means, since God is absolutely committed to us as his children to make us like his son, Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. What it means is that we just have to take the test, what? Again. 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 So James says, listen, hang in there. Count it all joy. Let it do its perfect work in you. You know, Christian maturity is not a matter 
of the number of trials we've faced, but how we have responded in the trials we have faced. Can't help but be reminded of a, of a guy I interviewed for a job decades ago. Got his resume and his cover letter, and he talked about having 20 years of experience. We brought him in, and we'd hired him, but the guy had been in a number of different jobs over the 20 years. We brought him in, and we interviewed him, and I remember when we <clears throat> finished with the interview and sent him out, and people said, what do you think? And, and I said, the guy doesn't have 20 years' experience. What he has is 21-year experiences. There's a big difference. And it's kind of like that here. The number of tests, the number of trials is not what results in the maturity. It's how we handle those trials that brings about Christian character, Christian maturity. Notice, by the way, that James doesn't specify exactly what Christian virtue the trials are developing. Do you notice that? He just says it brings about a wholeness to our Christian character, the end of verse 4. He doesn't really specify exactly what God is doing. By the way, it's a bit of a fool's errand. It's a bit of a fool's errand to say, well, God is teaching me this right now. He may be. And then again, he may be teaching you entirely something different. The progression is simple. It's trials rightly embraced, produces endurance, endurance results in spiritual maturity. The point of the matter is that we shouldn't be trying to guess what God is doing in my life. Or for that matter, we shouldn't be trying to guess what God is doing in each other's life, right? Oh, my brother, I can see that God is working in your life to bring about this thing. Well, really? Since when did the Holy Spirit embody himself in you? You don't know that. You do not know what God is doing. All we know is that God is at work to bring about a wholeness and a maturity to our Christian character. Exactly what he's teaching us, you probably don't know and may not know for a long, long time, if ever. If ever. So in light of the difficulty of the trials and the elusive nature of the lessons that we're learning among them, it seems to me that we must be pretty desperate for God's help in all of this, don't you think? That's what James thinks. Takes us to our third necessary step of preparation. We must employ divine assistance. Verses 5 through 8. We must employ divine assistance. He goes on to say, but if any of you lacks wisdom... By the way, the end of verse 4, you see, you'll be made perfect, you'll be made whole, you'll be made complete, lacking nothing. Verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, meaning there's still something lacking, and by the way, that's all of us, okay? We still have stuff lacking. So if we are lacking wisdom in the midst of our trials, then let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We're to pray. What is our proper response? Count it all joy. How do I do that? Pray. Pray. 
Pray with expectancy, verse 5. Ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a promise. Did you know that? That God has promised that if you will pray in the midst of your trials, if I will pray in the midst of my testings, that God will give me wisdom. Wisdom to get out from under the trial? Wisdom to evade the trial? No. Wisdom to endure in the trial so that I might grow whole and complete in Christ. And he does it generously. Do you see that? God is not stingy when he parcels this stuff out. He gives generously, James says, and He gives it without reproach, without reproach. The idea here is that he he gives it without a rebuke. He doesn't say, oh, is that you again? I gave you wisdom the last trial. Get to the back of the line. God is not like a father whose son comes to him and says, Dad, will you help me study for the test tomorrow? And the father says... Why didn't you study two weeks ago? That's to bring reproach. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, you were knocking on my door yesterday. I gave you what you needed. Stop bothering me. He says he'll give you generously. He wants to lavish it upon us. And we are so foolish we won't ask. So little in our faith, we won't ask. Ask with expectancy. God has promised to give it. Beyond that, verse 6, pray with sincerity. There is a condition that God sets here, verse 6, but let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. When we pray, we need to believe that God can and will provide that which we are asking for, which is wisdom to count it all joy in the midst of the trial. But often, I find myself praying and then finishing my prayer either verbally or mentally thinking, Ah, boy, I'm not sure if he's going to answer that one. Doubts creep in. Uncertainty. James says when that happens, I'm, I'm just like the sea being blown around by the wind. It's just going everywhere. Just going everywhere. Verse 7, pray with purity. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man he is, a a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He's looking to God and man for help. That's how it manifests itself. We're in the midst of a trial right now, and, and we call out to God. We call out to God. It's Sunday. We pray. We call out to God. God, help us. And then Monday morning, we call up our friends and say, now, what do you think I should be doing here? How do I get out of this thing? 
we vacillate back and forth between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. Hey, pastor, what do you what do you think I should be doing in this situation? Well, I'm not the Holy Spirit, but here's some of the things that the Proverbs say. Yeah, okay. Two days later, hey, my friends down at the at the gym told me I should be doing this. Great. Great. You want to listen to the word of God or you want to listen to your friends down at the gym on the treadmill? I mean, that's what happens, isn't it? We get kind of bounced around. James is saying, this should not be. This should not be. When we, when we do that, we're, we're acting in faithlessness. We're double-minded. We're committed to Christ and committed to the world. We value the word of God and the opinion of man. And we vacillate back and forth and back and forth. You know, there was a man who lived a long time ago. who was a classic illustration of what it means not to be a double-minded man. His name was Abraham. His name was Abraham. He lived a very, very long time ago, to be sure. And he was undergoing some very, very severe trials, right? Listen to how the Word of God describes this man, Abraham. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. What had God promised this man? Do you remember? That his wife was going to give birth to a son. And that through her and that son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You see, but Abraham had a problem. He had grown too old to father a son and his wife had been barren and was now herself 90 years old. But his faith never wavered, it says. It just grew stronger and stronger because he was fully convinced that God would do what God had said he would do. What about us? Midst of a trial... Do we go to God in prayer or do we, do we bounce back and forth between God and man? Go to the Bible, we get our answer there, and then, we, then we're off to talk to our friends and, and we listen to what they have to say and we're bounced around. Back and forth, back and forth. Do we trust God? Or do we want to take matters into our own hands? My friends, we've all failed this test. We've all failed this test on more than one occasion. There's none of us who has not struggled here and fallen. Worry, anxiety, stress, sleeplessness, heart attacks. I mean, these things come upon us as a result of our inability to fulfill what is called for here. How many times have we said, well, I've given it to God. 
But I keep taking it back. And I've given it to God. And I keep taking it back. We need to give it to God and leave it with God. May God grant us the grace to do it. To do it. We must employ divine assistance. Finally, we must correctly appraise reality. We must correctly appraise reality. We will never be able to give it to God and leave it with Him until we have a proper view of reality. As long as we are allowing ourselves to think like the world thinks, we will behave like the world behaves. Verse 9, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. What in the world is he talking about? How does that relate? Verse 12, we know for sure it's, it's talking about blessing that comes to us when we persevere under trial. So it's still in the context of the trials. So what in the world is he talking about? James says that when we can correctly appraise reality, then we will respond correctly in the midst of our trials. Whether the trial is poverty or wealth, we must not become caught up in our circumstances and fail to see what God is doing in our lives. You know, it's easy for a poor man to forget his position in Christ, to be focused on his external circumstances, his poverty, The fact that he's of no account in the world's eyes. And James says, no, no, glory in your humble circumstance or high position. Rather, you who are in humble circumstances, glory in your high position. That is in your status as a child of God, a son of the king. Yes, for now, life is really, really difficult. You're being pressured and squeezed. You're not sure where you're going to find the money to pay the rent that's due next week. You're having trouble putting food on the table. Maybe there's medical bills that are stacking up and and you don't know where it's all going to go. Maybe you're in danger this morning even of losing your house. You're being squeezed and pressured. James says, no, don't forget the fact that you may be poor in the world's goods, but you are rich in Christ. You are rich in Christ. And your spirit or your material poverty will not last forever. It will not last forever. Conversely, it's easy for the wealthy person to, to be so insulated from problems because of his wealth that he begins to grow complacent and, and to think that I don't really need God. 
I'm doing pretty well. I'm climbing that corporate ladder. I just got the last promotion. Yes, my involvement among the people of God is suffering, but, but I'm, I'm moving. And someday I'll, I'll get back to that, but I'm moving. I got another deal to do. James says to him here, let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Glory in his humiliation. What is his humiliation? It's funny. It's actually the same thing that the poor man has as has as a high position. See, Christ is the great leveler for the man poor in the world's goods. His high position is his relationship with God in Christ. For the man rich in the world's good, his humiliation is the fact that his relationship with God is as a sinner saved by grace through Jesus Christ. There's a great leveling that goes on at the cross of Christ. A great leveling. If you are rich in the world's goods, James says, do not be deceived. It will not insulate you. It cannot insulate you. It's like grass. The scorching wind comes on it, and in the midst of your pursuits, the end of verse 11, you fade away. You're gone. You're gone. But blessed, verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, once he has been tested and it is shown that he is approved, he will receive the crown of life, that is the crown which is life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. We have to appraise reality. We have to remember that it is not rich or poor. It is Christ that is everything. He is our guarantee of life everlasting. My friends, it is a failure on the part of the church to think seriously upon the life to come. The coming of Messiah's kingdom here on earth. When poverty will be done away with. When injustice will be no more. When disease and sickness will be banished. When war will be no more. It is that time that we will then enjoy the unhindered fellowship with Christ. What allows us to appraise reality in the midst of the greatest difficulties of life, it is to keep our eyes on the blessed hope, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we take our eyes off that, when we forget about that, we will flunk the exam. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Blessed is the man who perseveres. He will receive the crown which is life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. It is this assurance, this hope, that is the greatest piece of wisdom that God can give to any man. May God help us to steady our hearts looking for the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Our Father, there are many in our midst who are even right now involved in tests, trials, difficulties. Some are quite severe. They're being pressed. They feel like they're going to break. Oh, Lord, may you strengthen their faith even now this day. May you pour out your mercy and grace upon them. May this word from James, recorded so very long ago, be like a fresh breeze in their face. The smell of life. May it give them hope. May they fix their eyes on the return of Christ. May they recognize that this life is short and transitory. But our position in Christ is firm and eternal. Oh Lord, help us as your people to live out a practical Christianity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and turn to him 551, please. Soon and very soon. Soon and very soon We are going to see the King Soon and very soon We are going to see the King Soon and very soon We are going to see the King Hallelujah, hallelujah We're going to see the King no more crying there We are going to see the King No more crying there We are going to see the King No more crying there We are going to see the King Hallelujah, hallelujah We're going to see the King No more dying No more dying there we are going to see the King No more dying there We are going to see the King Hallelujah No more dying there We are going to see the King Hallelujah, hallelujah We're going to see the King Soon and very soon Soon and very soon We are going to see the Come on Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. Hallelujah, 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 we're going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're Amen. Have a blessed week. You're dismissed.